This is iUniverse Radio, brought to you by iUniverse, the leading book marketing, editorial services, and supported self-publishing company. iUniverse Radio is your opportunity to hear firsthand from authors about their new books. It's an in-depth discussion about the author's passion about the development of his or her story in their own words. It's an inside look into the characters and the plot and how the story all came together. Here is iUniverse Radio with host Steve Jorgensen. The title of the book, The American Hiroshima, Osama's Plan for a Nuclear Attack and One Man's Attempt to Warn America. And the author is Dr. Hugh Court. Hugh is the president of the American Foundation for Counterterrorism Policy and Research. And we want to welcome Dr. Hugh Court to iUniverse Radio. Hello, Hugh. Uh, hello, Steve. Uh, thanks for having me on the show. Well, tell us a little bit about this American Foundation for Counterterrorism Policy and Research, and then why you felt the urgency to write your book. Steve, um, again, I'm Dr. Hugh Court, President of the American Foundation for Counterterrorism Policy and Research, a uh, 501c3 nonprofit counterterrorism think tank. Uh, General Tom McInerney of uh, you, know, you see him on Fox News and CNN, uh, the military analyst. General uh, Tom McInerney is an honorary board member. Uh, Dr. Paul Williams, who's written five books on Osama bin Laden's nuclear plans, is a board member. And uh, we do a lot of counterterrorism research. And uh, I have uh, part of our research. Uh, I interviewed in person uh, Hamid Mir, uh, the top Pakistani journalist uh, when it came to America. Uh, Hamid Mir is kind of the Dan Rather of Pakistan. He uh, is the anchor of the biggest TV uh, station there, uh, GOTV, and uh, he's the one that interviews Condoleezza Rice and Tony Blair when they go to Pakistan, and he interviews former President Musharraf and people like that. And Hamid Mir has also interviewed Osama bin Laden three times and is the only person who has interviewed Osama after 9-11. Hamid Mir interviewed Osama bin Laden just before Osama fled Afghanistan through Tora Bora. At that time, Osama bin Laden told Hamid Mir that Osama has acquired 20 suitcase nuclear bombs that were stolen from the former Soviet Union and purchased on the black market. Uh, Osama has a plan he calls the American Hiroshima to blow up 10 American cities with nuclear devices like we blew up Hiroshima. And there's a lot of evidence that he's already smuggled these case nukes through the porous Mexican border into America. Uh, I asked uh, uh, Yosef Badansky, who is the director of the United States Congress's task force on terrorism for 16 years about this, and uh, to my shock, he said, oh yes, Osama bin Laden did acquire 22 case nuclear bombs uh, that were stolen from the former Soviet Union, and Yosef went on to say that it was in his book, uh, also, Chechen Jihad, about the Chechen Muslim, Al-Qaeda, who stole the nukes and sold them to Osama. Yosef said that he had made a report of that to a uh, congressional committee. Well, Steve, I was shocked to hear that Osama bin Laden has acquired nuclear weapons. Uh, and furthermore, that he has this plan to blow up 10 American cities. Uh, and uh, then, you know... Uh, <clears throat> Khalid Sheikh Mohammed, who is Osama's master planner for 9-11, who was captured and his trial is coming up in New York City 
uh, here uh, pretty soon. Uh, when Khalid Sheikh Mohammed was captured, he told the CIA and the Pakistani intelligence, and this was on his laptop computer, so it wasn't just waterboarded out of him, it was on his computer, that Osama bin Laden is planning a nuclear hailstorm for America. It's targeted 10 cities, New York, Washington, Philadelphia, Boston, Miami, Chicago, Houston, Los Angeles, Las Vegas, the Valdez Old Terminal in Alaska, that's the biggest old terminal in the U.S. So there's a lot of warning signs that um, Osama may be uh, doing this American Ocean attack in the very near future, like maybe by the end of this month or the next several months. And I wanted to you know, warn America about this possibility and get more media investigation into it. Uh, you know, the 9-11 commissions that had the FBI shared their warning signs they had about 9-11 uh, with the media and the public prior to 9-11, we might have stopped 9-11, and here's the same thing happening all over again. This, so my goal is to get this really out there to the American uh, people. He seems to like to uh, like uh, beat his chest and uh, kind of tell everybody what he's about to do, doesn't he? Well, he certainly does. Um, you know, he himself said, uh, made this statement, he said, uh, um, the only reason... Uh, 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 let's see, something like uh, he made a statement saying uh, that uh, <clears throat> um, the only reason why we haven't attacked America yet is not because of your security precautions. It's simply that we're not quite through with our preparation. And the minute the preparations are through, you'll feel the attacks in your own homes. Uh, then shortly after that audio tape from bin Laden, then uh, a videotape came out from his number two man, Ayman al-Zawahiri, and uh, also Adam Gadan, the American al-Qaeda, and they said they urged America to uh, uh, convert to Islam, uh, and uh, they uh, also, you know, Osama offered a truce to America if they would get out of Afghanistan and, and uh, Iraq and all the lands of the, uh, of, of the uh, Muslims that they would Osama would give us a truce, and uh, then uh, it's very alarming at the end of that audio tape where Ayman al-Zawahiri urges everyone in America to become a Muslim. He then says, at the end of the videotape, he says, now we have satisfied all the requirements of Muslim law. We have given you warning, we have offered you a chance to convert to Islam, and we have offered you a truce. Now we may attack you, and we are justified in doing so. So uh, then another thing, uh, Hamid Mir told us that he had been contacted by a, an al-Qaeda, uh, the top al-Qaeda commander in Afghanistan, who summoned him to Afghanistan uh, for a meeting. And when Hamid Mir went over there, this uh, top al-Qaeda commander, who's obviously in close touch with Osama, said that now all the preparations were made. Osama may attack America at any time. They're not saying what time, but that... Um, all the Muslims need to leave America now, especially New York and Washington, because uh, Osama doesn't want to hurt the Muslims, but if they don't leave, he doesn't have any other choice, and this is their last warning. So there's a lot of signs that the preparations have made, and then further alarming is the fact that uh, uh, back in uh, just a year ago, 2008, uh, ABC News reported in October of uh, 2008 that our uh, intelligence agencies had intercepted a message from Al-Qaeda High Command to all the local Al-Qaeda cells around the world saying, be on notice, we may call upon you soon. That was October 2008. Then, um, just uh, shortly, a few months after that, on November 9th, five days after the election, uh, uh, 
the uh, Al-Quds Arabi newspaper came out on their front page with an article saying Osama has now given the order to set this huge attack into motion, and uh, it's going to be way bigger than 9-11. It's going to change the economic and political structure of the world, and it will take place sometime in the near future. And again, even though that was a year ago, which our Western minds are thinking, it's like, well, why hasn't it happened already? Uh, you know, Osama's very, very patient and so just the fact that it's been set in the process doesn't mean that, and it hasn't happened uh, yet, doesn't mean it's not coming soon. You know, it took five years to Was it five years? Yeah. Wow. This thing has been, been being planned since he, ever, since he started seeking uh, enriched uranium back way in 1992. So there, there's a lot of ev- alarming evidence, and our, our goal is to warn America and also to tell Americans how to, you know, avoid radiation poisoning and uh uh, that kind of thing, what to do if there were a nuclear blast to happen. So I, I think our book, which is, again, the American Hiroshima, uh, Sama's Plan for Nuclear Attack and One Man's Attempt to Warn America, is a very important book. People can get it at iUniverse.com, Amazon.com, BooksMillion.com, soon to be on Barnes & Noble. Um, dot com. Uh, also, uh, our website uh, has a lot of information about this, which is... Uh, the, uh, the the acronym for American Foundation uh, uh, of uh, Counterterrorism Policy and Research, which is uh, AFCPR.org. And again, that's A is in Apple, F is in Frank, C is in Charlie, P is in Paul, R is in Radio.org. AFCPR.org. And I have a lot of our information on there. It's uh, really great. Uh, source of info. So if people go to uh, A is in Apple, F is in Frank, C is in Charlie, P is in Paul, R is in Radio.org, AFCPR.org, it has it all right there. You say that if the 9-11, uh, well, the 9-11 Commission, you said, uh, if the FBI had shared the warning signs it had about 9-11 with the media and the public, uh, we, may, we may have been able to stop it. Uh, that's very correct. You know, uh, the uh, FBI uh, took into custody Zacharias Massawi, the so-called 20th hijacker, one month before 9-11. And remember, his flight instructors had uh, uh, turned him in because they were very alarmed because here's a guy from the Middle East, uh, a very suspicious guy who wanted to fly airplanes in midair but didn't want to land or take off. And uh, that was very suspicious, so the uh, FBI arrested him. And the FBI actually had warnings that there was going to be some plans to hijack planes and crash them in the building. So had they made that you know, known to the public, then every flight instructor in the country would have said, hey, we've got some suspicious Middle Eastern guys that are taking flight lessons, too. In fact, you know, two of the 9-11 hijacker pilots were trained out to fly in the suburb of my hometown of Birmingham at the uh, flight training school there in Bessemer, Alabama. So, uh, uh, you know, it's, uh, you know, they, we, it, it, more media attention could have really stopped this thing. Now, FBI Director Robert Mueller um, report, uh, gave an interview to Newsmax, uh, and he said that uh, uh, he knew that uh, al-Qaeda was desperately seeking nuclear weapons, nuclear materials, and that they had targeted New York City and Washington, and that he was, quote, having trouble sleeping at night for worrying about it. That's FBI Director Robert Mueller. Um, also, what's alarming is our uh, Homeland Security and FBI is so concerned about this is that they have spent $400 million to put radiation detectors, nuclear radiation detectors, around the mosques in these 10 uh, target cities and also in different traffic uh, intersections in Washington, D.C. and New York City, but as Steve Call, who 
I did an article for the counterterrorism researcher, did an article that's on the front page of the New Yorker magazine, March of 2007, points out these nuclear radiation detectors cannot detect enriched uranium that's shielded in lead. Uh, we don't, just don't have the technology to see through the lead to see, you know, enriched uranium. So, uh, of course, these terrorists would have these suitcase nukes in a lead container. So, you know, here, here, here the government's so worried about they spent $400 million on nuclear radiation detectors that don't work. <laughs> so it's really a pretty alarming situation, and I, I, I've been trying to get a congressional hearing on this. I've actually met with 35 senators and 30 congressmen trying to get a congressional hearing on this to get more media attention to it. Um, and also... Uh, why, why haven't you been successful? Well, I've been, you know, I've talked to them, 35 senators individually, face to face, in person, and they're all very interested. To take our, take, take my information and look at it and read it. And, you know, I've talked, met with their staff on it, but they, uh, just don't seem to be, you know, motivated to do a congressional hearing. I think they're afraid that they're going to scare America. And of course, my thing is, I think we need to warn America. Uh, I think, you know, you know, media too has been reluctant. The real report on it saying, well, we don't want to alarm America and this kind of thing. But my thing is, uh, you know, hey, you know, if this happens, God forbid, we'll be talking about it for the next hundred years. Why can't we talk about it now? And, you know, uh, again, I, I hope we're wrong, but I, I feel like there's a whole lot of evidence that we could well be correct. And that certainly needs more media investigation. We certainly need to talk about it. We need to investigate it. We need to, you know, really see what's happening. And also, too, if we get this out to the media and the public, uh, you know, FBI Director Robert Mueller. Uh, has identified the man that he calls the next Muhammad Atta, the person who's going to be leading these new attacks, uh, and, uh, similar to the way that Muhammad Atta led the first 9-11. And this man that Osama bin Laden has designated as the new leader of the uh, coming 9-11, the new 9-11, is uh, a man called Adnan Shukrajuma, uh, or Adnan El Shukrajuma, and the FBI has been looking for him for five years. They have him on their most wanted site. They have a $5 million reward on his head, and they can't find him. And uh, and my thing is, well, naturally they can't find him. There are only 12,000 FBI agents in the country, and FBI, and uh, Chukajuma is a master of disguise, so only 12,000 agents can't find him. But if they put his face on America's most wanted TV show, you know, 300 million Americans and 36 million Canadians could find find the guy in two weeks. So I feel like we need to get this out there to the public, and uh, I certainly hope the media will uh, take a look at, at this book uh, that I've written, Osama's uh, Plan for Nuclear Attack and No Man's Sent to War in America, and, and uh, you know, we'll really kind of get with it and do some investigation of this thing, and, and the government as well. Uh, Have you uh, contacted any of the media with your book, with your evidence? Uh, I have contacted many uh, members of the media. In fact, no, the the I, national uh, media? Uh, oh, yes, I uh, uh, actually spoke to, uh, in person, face-to-face, and given our information uh, to, just as I'm telling you, to Tom Brokow, uh, to Anderson Cooper, Wolf Blitzer, uh, John King, uh, Bob Schieffer, uh, Charles Gibson, Glenn Beck. Uh, we met with Glenn Beck for 45 minutes, Dr. Williams and I did. Uh, Glenn Beck has interviewed Hamid Mir, knows the whole uh, story about the, uh, you know, uh, Osama's plan for American Hiroshima. And Glenn Beck did put, uh, Adnan Shukrajuma's face on his, uh, TV show there for one night. But my thing is you gotta really put it out there for, you know, several weeks or a month to really get, you know, Americans identifying this guy. But 
Glenn is aware of the whole plan, but Glenn said, well, guys, you know, I've got to have, you know, concrete evidence. You've got to give me meat. I've got to have concrete evidence to get this, you know, put this on TV. And so he said, well, Glenn, in the intelligence world, you know, you never get, you know, concrete evidence. You get little bits and pieces, and you put them together to see the big picture. The big picture is certainly very alarming. Uh, we're not going to get concrete evidence till the bombs go off. Now, are these so, dirty uh, bombs, or are these, you know, just devastating uh, bombs that wipe out everything? These are not dirty bombs. These are actual suitcase nuclear bombs that have a 10 kiloton yield. Uh, Hiroshima was 13 kilotons. So we're talking bombs almost as powerful as Hiroshima. And, you know, the Soviet Union made several hundred of these, of which about 80 went missing and were reported by the uh, Soviet officials. In fact, you know, Hans Blix, who was the weapons inspector for the United Nations for the IAEA, uh, remember Hans Blix, the, the IAEA weapons inspector that was inspecting Iraq and that right. kind of thing. And uh, he actually was asked to make a report of this. So Hans Blix went to uh, uh, and, and interviewed the Russian officials who reported the theft of the bombs. And he also interviewed the Chechen Muslim al-Qaeda that had stolen the bombs and sold them to al-Sama. And Hans Blix concluded and reported back to his colleagues at the IAEA that, yes, Osama bin Laden had acquired 20 suitcase nuclear bombs. Uh, that was reported uh, by uh, 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 Stephen Stogel, uh, who's a very well-known reporter for Times and also Newsmax, and it was reported in Newsmax. Um, so, you know, there's been, you know, some word about this, but the media has just kind of just ignored it and uh, talked about Britney Spears and all kind of inconsequential things when this is a thing that they ought to be investigating. Uh, now, also, uh, I was asked by Governor Bob Riley, who's the governor of my state of Alabama, to meet with our Homeland Security Director of Alabama, which I did for two hours. And the Homeland Security Director of the entire Southeast came over and uh, met with me for two hours and also met with our uh, twice the FBI. And then Dr. Williams and I were invited to come up to Washington uh, and where we spent two hours uh, giving our info to the Senior Director for Combating Terrorism and the Director for Combating Terrorism of the National Security Council at the White House compound. So we have certainly done, you know, yes. uh, as much as we can to get this out. And, and also, in addition, uh, also I'll talk about, uh, I, I give this information to Fred Barnes, Fox News, my friend, and he took it to Dick Cheney. Uh, and maybe that's why you know, one of the things possibly that's causing Dick Cheney to say that we're, there's going to be a big nuclear uh, or biological right. or nuclear and biological attack on America in the next year. Um, so, you know, we've certainly done our effort to get it out. And also in an effort to get this out to America, Steve, I ran for president in the Republican 2008 presidential primary as a, as a lesser-known candidate. But even as a lesser-known candidate, I was able to give speeches with Mike Huckabee and Ron Paul and Duncan Hunter and the other candidates all around the country. For example, I gave a speech uh, to 5,000 Iowa Republicans at the Iowa caucus, along with Mike Huckabee and Ron Paul. I do believe they listened more intently to me than they did to Mike Huckabee. Yeah, I bet they did. Uh, well, Dr. Court, uh, we've kind of run out of time, and we certainly could go on and on with you. That's very, unfortunately, fascinating, at the same time, extremely sobering. But tell us again how to get your book. Um, you can order my book, which, again, is The American Hiroshima... Osama's plan for nuclear attack and one man's attempt to warn America. You can just uh, go to Amazon.com and punch in the American Hiroshima or uh, go to Barnes & Noble or iUniverse, iUniverse or Books a Million. And then also our website is very good. Uh, uh, again, that website is 
A F C T R dot org. A is in Apple, F is in Frank, C is in Charlie, T is in Paul, R is in Radio dot org. A F C P R dot org. And I do hope people will look at that so they can find out how to avoid radiation sickness again. Uh, God forbid a nuclear bomb should go off. You're in the suburbs. You will survive the initial blast. Now it's real important to survive the radiation. If you stay in your home for three days, then you can come out for a 10-minute trip once a day. After two weeks, you can come out all the time. But anyone that leaves their house sooner than that to go pick up their child at school immediately gets a fatal dose of radiation, and they die a horrible death over the next month, bleeding death internally from radiation sickness. So very important to protect against radiation sickness. Also on our website, you can... Get information about how to get potassium iodide pills that can prevent thyroid cancer. You know, thyroid cancer can be caused by a nuclear blast even 300 miles away from the blast site by the radioactive iodine that's carried downwind. Uh, and you can get, uh, you know, potassium iodide pills can prevent that. Uh, of course, we don't get any profit from that. We just tell you where the sites are. We can order that. But I really think that more needs to be done to warn America and prepare America for the, uh, God forbid this thing should happen. That's for sure. Well, Dr. Court, thank you so much for being on iUniverse Radio with your warning, and it's certainly a book that all Americans need to read. Thank you. And, and uh, Steve, if I could make one more statement. We have heard from Hamid Mir, uh, the Taliban chieftains have told them that they think that Osama might do this thing at the point where Israel attacks Iran's nuclear sites, and we've heard that Israel may attack Iran's nuclear sites by the you know the week after Christmas. So, uh, this thing could happen soon after that. So, just wanted to give everybody a heads up about right, that. Right, right. Well, thank you again. Again, such a sobering warning, but information that we need to really pay attention to. Thank you, Dr. Hugh Court. He is the author of his book, The American Hiroshima. Osama's plan for a nuclear attack and one man's attempt to warn America. You're listening to iUniverse Radio. We'll be back right after these messages. East Texas Meals on Wheels needs your help. For the first time in 35 years, Meals on Wheels has a waiting list for meals. Currently, we serve more than 3,500 meals per day. With the help of donors and volunteers, we can eliminate the waiting list and serve more meals and ensure all who need a hot, nutritious meal are served. You can call our offices toll-free at 1-800-451-2912 to find out more about how you can help. You can also visit our website at www.mealsonwheelseasttexas.org. Again, toll-free at 1-800-451-2912 or visit us on the web at www.mealsonwheelseasttexas.org. After all, when a person needs a meal, they need it today, not tomorrow. Thank you for helping Meals on Wheels. Saturdays on toginap.com. It's Author Talk. Get the story behind the story on fiction and literature, graphic novels, horror, mystery and crime novels, romance, science fiction and fantasy, westerns, history, humor, inspiration, and every genre. It's all on Author Talk. You'll get to hear new authors talk about their books. Take the opportunity to hear insights on what inspired them to write it. It's called Author Talk on toginet.com. And it's presented by Author House, the leading provider of services to help authors publish, promote, and sell their book around the world. Author House has assisted more than 30,000 authors, producing over 40,000 titles. 
Author Talk with host Steve Jorgensen every Saturday on Toginet.com. Radio with a cutting edge. Welcome back to iUniverse Radio with host Steve Jorgensen. The title of the book, Lost Love Found, and the author is Tim Gomes, and Tim joins us now on iUniverse Radio. Hello, Tim. Hello. How are you, Steve? Very good, and uh, great to have you on the show. I'm going to read your statement, a short statement, kind of in summary of what your book is about. Uh, You say, this is a story of a man's grief after losing his dearly loved wife, the agonizing and helpless emotions when his only son goes missing in Iraq, and the new love in danger of accepting his long-lost first love. That's Lost Love Found. Now, why did you write this kind of story? Because we're dealing with war and we're dealing with love, and of course, all the intrigue and danger in both. Yes, I wrote the book because, while I am a, a veteran, and my son did go to Iraq, and I have been married for some 38 years now, and have really been concerned at times how my life would be if I were to lose my wife how my son's life would be and his wife. And it occurred to me that, say, a former high school lover, a first, first love, could come back into a man's life after he lost his, his beloved wife. So it could be his first love was his lost love. He found his true love. He lost his true love and then found his first love again, lost love found. Additionally, you know, the the fear, the emotions that a man feels when his only son is at peril and his daughter-in-law is seeking his support and and, uh, consolation. Also, the fact that the story involves the loss of his wife in the uh, Flight 93 of, of 9-11 is meant to be uh, sort of an honor um, or a theme of, of talking about the heroism that surrounded the, the 9-11 uh, attacks. I guess that's about it for, you know, I just love to write. Now, the main character is Dan Jagger. That is correct. Now, Dan Jagger is, uh, we're introduced to him, and he's in combat. In Vietnam, yes. Now, tell us about Dan, uh, you know, what kind of a person he is, and what, you know, motivates him, what's his agenda? Well, he's a very determined man, uh, a man who wants to be uh, and is a survivor. When he first went to college, he kind of partied his way into the draft. And in the draft, the only thing he had was going to infantry and then Vietnam. 
in his first true battle, you know, the story starts out there, and he's longing for his, his true love, Darlene, or Charlene, I mean, I'm sorry, Charlene. And while he's struggling with not being with her, the first combat experience occurs when there's an attack on, on the base where he's at, a fire support base. Afterward, when he gets out of the army, Charlene picks him up, and his Kodak moment of running to her is spoiled when she turns her head. He spent the night with her, and it was the coldest night he ever spent. Then Dan finds his true love, the woman that Charlene drove him into. And the life just continues from there. Uh, she, Aaliyah is his true love and supports him and reforms him and assists him in struggling to complete college while working full-time. And then as he progresses through employment, he has become successful. And at the pinnacle of his success, he loses his wife. And one of his wife's former employees had gone to school with Charlie. And at a high school reunion, they get together after afterwards, and Charlene has a mysterious past. Her first husband turned out to be a drug dealer and got Charlene involved. And now, some 30 years later, as he gets out of, of prison, he seeks revenge. And this is a story of how Dan protects himself, Charlene, his family, from the revenge-seeking former husband. And Charlene and Dan's uh, new love after she is uh, after she dies are friends. Yes. Which puts a very, uh, in fact, there, is there some jealousy between the two of them? Yes, there is. Um, in fact, uh, Aaliyah, his true love, his wife, was very jealous of the memory of Charlene when they first met. Charlene had driven uh, Dan into Aaliyah's arms, and Aaliyah was always jealous of that memory. So Dan isn't able to convince her. Convince Aaliyah? Right. That she is the only one now. Well, after some years, yes. She is convinced, after all. You know, over 30 years of marriage. And they were happy. They have a child. They were lovers for all those years. Romantic entwined. There's not much else to say about that. They yeah. were true lovers. 
Now, what role does Dan's son play in this? Now, what's his name? Stephen Nicholas Jagger, nicknamed Nick. Nick. Nick, for Nick Jagger. Okay. And he is a, he works with the DEA, and he knows that his father, some 30, 35 years ago, enjoyed the hippie life. And Steve is very conscientious in his job and is reviewing the upcoming parole of several drug dealers, one of which is Charlene's former husband. And he, he, rec- he recognizes the name? No, he does not recognize the name at all. Oh, okay. He doesn't know him from anybody. He just reviews his case. He's reviewing a number of parolees that are or potential parolees. And he is struck by the viciousness of this one who in his he's a two time loser. His second uh, arrest was a drug deal gone bad and the attempted murder of an agent. And so he was incarcerated for some 25 years, but is getting out early after a little over 10 years because of overcrowding and lacks judicial uh, uh, oversight. So Nick thinks uh, this person needs to be watched carefully. Uh, yes, he does. Uh, at least keep kept track of. Um, Not knowing that this person's going to come into his life. No, not at all. And very close to his, obviously, his uh, ones he loves. Yes, and Steve is very close, or was very close with his mother, and does not want his father to get involved with any other woman to desecrate the mother's memory. And when he and his wife run into Dan and Charlene at a restaurant. He picks up on her name, her last name, and discovers that she was an ex-felon in the first drug bust. And, you know, she is he is very leery of her and thinks that she is out after his father's money. Uh, Nothing but his money. Over the years, uh, his father and mother had made some wise choices in real estate and other investments and have a, a little bit of, of assets at this point. And Nick or Steve is very concerned about uh, Charlene's wanting to get into those assets for her her husband, her ex-husband, who is coming out of parole. Tim, let's talk about Jeff Benson. Now, he is the convict at getting out of prison, uh, Charlene's former husband. Let's talk about what makes this man tick. All right. Um, While Dan was in Vietnam, Charlene was working at a finance company, and Jeff was the copy repairman copier and they started talking and started going out 
And by the time Dan got back from Vietnam, she had taken up with him, and he moved in with her. So Dan was out, and Jeff was in. Now, Jeff got uh, Charlene involved in marijuana, and it worked up from there to harder drugs. Through her connections in the office, his dealing of marijuana grew, and with the funds coming in, he branched out into other drugs, getting Charlene more involved. Then he hit the big time with cocaine, and then uh, when he was arrested, Charlene was also arrested because she was an accomplice. She spent maybe five years in jail, and he spent uh, seven years. While she was out, she divorced him, and while in prison, Jeff became harder and a little more vicious. When he got out of prison the first time, he got back with Charlene. He actually, to get back with her, he dropped a tab of acid into her wine, and then they get involved in another drug bust where there is the attempted murder of an agent. In order to save herself, she testifies against him, and when he sits in jail for uh, some 10 years, he is just incensed with, with her testimony. All he has to do in Pelican Bay is lift weights and plot revenge, and his hatefulness, his, his desire for revenge just accelerates and grows while he's in prison. There's going to be some big confrontations coming. Yes, that's very true, and he is suspected of killing Charlene's third husband. Tim, tell us how to get your book. Well, the book is available on my website, www.timgomes.com. That's G-O-M-E-S, timgomes.com. That's right, T-I-M-G-O-M-E-S.com. It's available for order from there, and hopefully soon we'll be in bookstores. We appreciate you sharing this uh, story with us. It sounds uh, like a lot of twists and turns, a great mystery story filled with intrigue and heroism and revenge that'll keep readers right on the edge of their seats and want to keep reading, wouldn't you say? Yes, I would. In fact, many folks, um, relatives, and those that I work with who have previewed advanced copies do say it's a page-turner and can't wait until the final version comes out. Well, thanks, Tim, for being on iUniverse Radio. It's my pleasure. That was Tim Gomes. He is the author of his book, Lost Love Found. You're listening to iUniverse Radio. We'll be back right after these messages. He's a diehard American. He's right, and he has the last name to prove it. He's Jason Wright, the host of The Right Side of the Aisle on TogiNet Radio. Jason is a father and self-made entrepreneur who turned a struggling East Texas real estate firm into a top-notch million-dollar company. 
Jason Wright loves America and is very concerned about where we are headed as a nation. He's dedicated to traditional American values. Jason Wright. Join us every Friday at 11 a.m. Eastern for The Right Side of the Aisle on toginet.com. Maybe if I write a book, it will be the thing that keeps me alive. Those are the troubled words of a new 16-year-old author with her first thought-provoking book, What Gives? Published by Togi Entertainment. The author kept a diary during her dark teenage times, which turned into a 360-page suicide note with a happy ending. Texas Monthly describes teen author Chelsea Marie and her new book, What Gives?, in this provocative way. We've plunged from page to page, not because of the young diarist despondency. Depression is not especially attractive or compelling, but because we are fascinated to see that while she is fending off demons on one hand, she is writing verse with the other. What Gives is available at whatgivesbook.com and national bookstores. Readers of What Gives are giving rave reviews. All social scientists, teachers, and students should use this book as a learning tool. What Gives is available at whatgivesbook.com and national bookstores. Welcome back to iUniverse Radio with host Steve Jorgensen. The title of the book, Scraps, Fictional Fragments, and the author is David Luck, and David joins us now on iUniverse Radio. Hello, David. Hi, how are you today, Steve? Well, this is a collection of short stories, of stories that come from your experience of living near a, a, a lake right there in Denver, and then some other, I guess, some other uh, stories from your travels? That's correct, of course, uh part of why I named the book Scraps is because uh, it's just a variety of stories gleaned from uh, many places and many people. Although, as you mentioned, uh, the first five stories uh, are centered around a lake here in Denver called Sloan's Lake. And uh, I came to write those stories. Uh, I'd been living in the mountains, kind of an isolated area, and I was used to taking hikes by myself and and uh, just not inter- uh just not interacting with people particularly, and I moved to Denver itself and a few blocks away from this lake, and suddenly here I was just uh, overwhelmed by people of all varieties and ethnic uh, mix and uh, all the vibrant colors uh, of the city, and uh, that just uh, brought my mind into overdrive, and uh, I started imagining what many of these people I met might be doing in their life, and uh, out of that came these stories, these lake stories, the first five. And you say readers will enjoy the story's characters as they wrestle, these characters wrestle with familiar themes of love, lust, and yearning. Well, I always laugh a little bit about uh, about that when someone asks me, well, what, what do you really write about? Well, I think most all of us writers write about the themes of life, lust, love, and yearning. And uh, with outcomes that uh, these stories have outcomes that sometimes uh, are not always what uh, you think they should be. And I think that's the surprise in many of the stories. Um, you use, uh, is it Garrison Keeler? Garrison Keeler quote. Yeah, correct. the quote, uh, writers are vacuum cleaners who suck up other people's lives and weave them into stories like a sparrow builds a nest from scraps. That's true. That's what, what we all do. And I know that in my own experience, that's what I do 
sometimes not even realizing that I do it, uh, you know, meeting people and seeing people. I just collect these little tidbits, and uh, eventually those are woven into some story that I might uh, be writing. So as you uh, very specifically say, Scraps is not a quilting book. <laughs> but, you know, there are, there are these stories are like a tapestry of stimulating fiction. Now, what is the stimulating fiction? Uh, what kind of a theme do you have? Well, there's not a theme that goes, uh, you know, through the entire book in that sense, Steve. But the stories are are just a, a lot of life stories. Uh, they involve people, real life people, and what real life people are are dealing with, and how they how they challenge each other each other indirectly sometimes, sometimes very directly, and of course the. Uh, Always the hidden theme of, uh, well, you know, is this going to be hurtful? Is this going to be loving? Uh, and, of course, sometimes the ending uh, will surprise even ourselves in our real life, and, and the endings will surprise us in these stories, too. And you touch on our memories, and you touch on our vulnerabilities. Well, that's really, really right. Some of these stories uh, came out of the past, um, I, I'm a native of Wyoming, and so I gleaned a lot of scraps from there, too. And uh, some of these stories delve back into my childhood, and uh, and I've had readers that have read the book, Scraps, uh, tell me, boy, this, I really relate to this. I can remember doing this when I was a, when I was a child, or I can really relate to walking around the lake, uh, as you do in your stories, because I used to do that, and I used to see people that were just exactly like you portrayed them in this book, and they really have enjoyed reading this book, Scraps. So you've really tried to make it realistic because you say my characters experience and struggle with these different desires, and like us, sometimes they're successful and sometimes they're not. That's true, and that's, uh, Steve, I've tried to write, I try to write realistically. These people are just like uh, you and just like me and just like the people we meet every day in our own families and uh, our own struggles and our own beliefs. And uh, sometimes uh, we get misled, too, by outsiders. And uh, then these stories in our lives, or our lives as portrayed in these stories, um, sometimes have surprising endings. We may dream about things all, uh, all our life, and uh, sometimes we realize those dreams, and sometimes we don't. And then sometimes we realize those dreams in a way in which we would have no idea it was going to happen. And I like to surprise readers that way. And you talk about the challenge of writing believable characters. That is really a challenge. It really is a challenge to write believable characters because... You pick a character, or you don't really necessarily pick a character, but a character comes to mind, and and I really try to put myself in that character's place, and what would I do in this situation, or how would I react to uh, this other person, uh, and I try to make it as realistic as I can, because uh, I'm sure you've read books too, Steve, that the characters just don't seem real, you know, they couldn't do that, or, you know, they couldn't think like that, and... Uh, I try to avoid that. I try to make them just everyday, common, ordinary people, uh, just like you and me. 
And you call that realistic creativity. I call that realistic <laughs> creativity, right. And I think a lot of that, you have to be a real observer of life. And I, I really think I am a, a real observer of life, of people and, and of life. It's, uh, it's kind of like standing on a street corner and watching the people walk by, but it goes deeper than that. Uh, people have coats on and clothes on, and, and they look a certain way. But uh, how do they really look uh, you know, in their own mind? How do they really look? And uh, how are they really presenting themselves in the world? And uh, kind of like looking at these people that way, really analyzing them and how we think they might really be. And, and then being able to write that is the challenge. And how these characters might respond in a, in a different situation that you put them in. <laughs> that's, that's always a surprise to me, too. And I, <laughs> I enjoy that part. You enjoy that part. You know, all of a sudden, your characters come to life, and they start talking, right? That's right. And you go, wow, I didn't know they knew that. That's right. <laughs> Where'd they get that idea from? Absolutely. You make this statement. You said some of the short stories in Scraps are, re- are a reminder of simpler times, our history, something we all yearn for. Now, talk about that. Help us understand what you're saying there. A few of the stories in Scraps uh, come from simpler times. Uh, they uh, they delve back uh, to a time when we didn't have all the electronic media that we have now. Um, there's two stories in particular. Come Spring is one, and the, the other one is called The Box Social. And these are, uh, these are events that occurred back in, oh, say, in the uh, 40s and 50s. Uh, and these were social interactions where people actually got together and did things uh, socially without the use of electronic devices. And I, I kind of think that's interesting. Well, I, I, I think it's very interesting because we are so attuned to doing everything through electronic media now. And, in fact, you'll see some of the cartoons in, in the everyday paper where uh, people... Uh, start to chat over the back fence, and they say, well, you know, you can see my comments on Facebook. And uh, these stories, like uh, I mentioned, go back to a time when people interacted face-to-face. And uh, the box social is a uh, where uh, sandwiches were made by uh, the women and, and the young, young women, and uh, then they were auctioned off, and they were always auctioned off for a good cause, uh, but as a young uh, person, as you'll see in the story, you'll find out why he's, he started to perspire because he got his father to do the bidding for him. And these were social interaction things that we just don't see anymore. And I think some people yearn for that. They yearn for simpler times, and they will enjoy these stories. Now, the characters that are involved with lake stories, are, are these people that you knew or these uh, situations, uh, experiences that real people went through, or is this just what you've created? These are all fiction, just what I created. Uh, they're created, uh, or they are based on people that I saw, uh, observed around the lake on my walks, and uh, I just made up these stories about them. They, I never met any of those people in, in the lake stories. They're just truly fictional stories that I 
uh, invented, but based on real people that I saw around the lake and behaviors that I saw around the lake. Without giving away the uh, the the climax of this short story, tell us about the character Angelica. Just you know, give us some little insight into Angelica and what she's going through, her mental process. Here's Angelica, a young woman, uh, Hispanic in, in uh, origin, of course, and she's uh, she was as a young girl, she was attracted to a, a fellow at the lake, and uh, not even a romance particularly blossomed. Although she, uh, as a young girl, felt giddy in love with this guy, and and ultimately became pregnant, and things didn't work out, and because of age difference and many other things. And so here's a mother with a child, and she's trying to get back into school to get, gain education so that she can become something and support herself. Well, the father enters back into the picture, and uh, slowly but surely she wants him to get to know his and her son. But here she's torn uh, because she has a goal now. Boy, she's got a goal. She's going to make something of herself. She doesn't want to be caught back in this trap uh, with this man. But uh, this is all then pictured because she's waiting for him. He, they've come to a point where she allows him to take the, their son that they share uh, for an evening, and he's not returned the son. And this is uh, the setting is in a in the wintertime, and she's sitting in her car, and it's cold, and and that increases her anxiety, and where can her, uh, uh, the father's, her son's father be? He's late bringing back the son, and all this anxiety is carried through in the icy cold of this car. That is Angelica. Now, why do you take us to England? Well, England, uh, I just look for variety, uh, I took you to England because I witnessed uh, an episode similar to what happened in Balby in this story, and I thought it would be interesting. And uh, it could happen anywhere, but this one did happen in England. And then you have, I guess, a comment about death and taxes. <laughs> <laughs> you know, the things that we all can count on, right? Well, uh, you know, there's always that saying, uh, uh, you know, about death and taxes. And uh, here's Loomis in uh, Death and Taxes, and, and Loomis has uh, lived a, a long life, but uh, uh, unbeknownst to him, uh, taxes are coming due. And, uh, well, you'll have to read the story to find out who, who wins, death or taxes. So <laughs> it's an interesting story. You have another title, Never Be Afraid Again. Never Be Afraid Again uh, is a story that I wrote pertaining to uh, concealed weapon carry and uh, how concealed weapon carry can make us feel very safe. Maybe. <laughs> Maybe. Yes, it may be just uh, an illusion, huh? <laughs> but, well, you'll have to read the story. That's right. Either. That's right. When you... When you when you can feel that weapon against you, I guess, you know, it's a different feeling than when you don't have it on. <laughs> yes, I'm sure that's true. And who's Petey? Petey is a parrot. <laughs> <laughs> and, 
I'm glad I asked. I'm this, is, this is my fictional choice for <laughs> uh, for comedy uh, humor, <laughs> okay. and um, Petey is a parrot that uh, comes in to see this veterinarian via his owner, and Petey looks dead as a doornail in the cage. But uh, anyway, this young veterinarian can has uh, optimistic that he can save anyone's life, but. Uh, Anyway, uh, you'll get some laughs out of that story. <laughs> right. He's a, a parrot full of surprises. Tell us about your website. My website uh, is easy to access. It's www.davidluck.net. So it's just my name and .net. And you can find out more information about me and, uh, and also information about my uh, other books that are available also. And we can get your book through iUniverse, as well as, I'm sure, all the online retailers. That is correct. Uh, Amazon.com, Barnes & Nobles, any bookstore can, uh, can arrange to uh, get the book for you. Well, David, we want to thank you for being on iUniverse Radio. Well, thank you very much uh, for talking with me, Steve, and uh, enjoy Scraps. That was David Luck, the author of his book, Scraps. Fictional Fragments. iUniverse Radio is brought to you by iUniverse, the leading book marketing, editorial services, and supported self-publishing company. iUniverse Radio is produced by TogiNet Radio. Radio with a cutting edge.